This episode is sponsored by the Jewelry Institute of America, located in Houston, Texas, serving the entire world. Learn optical diamond setting and hand engraving from world-class instructors. Check out our courses online at the Jewelry Institute of America. Welcome to the Hand Engraving Podcast, the world's greatest podcast dedicated to the art and artists of hand engraving. I'm your host, Wade Oliver Wilson, Master Engraver. Everybody. It's so nice to be back with you. It's early spring here in North Texas. The birds are here and the flowers are on the way. I've got a great show for you today. Over the weekend, I had a conversation with Mr. Lane Zolke. That's how it's pronounced. Zolke. Out of all the things that this show can do for the engraving community, perhaps the most important will be teaching you all how to pronounce the names of our fellow engravers. I guess it will be a way, going forward, that I'll be able to tell who listens to the show and who doesn't. Anyway, you all probably already know Lane. He's a very high-profile engraver. He's the vice president of FIGA, and he's a maker of YouTube videos. You know us engravers are a community of doers. Just get online and you'll see how many engravers are branching out and trying new avenues to support their careers in engraving. I personally know people who are making videos and teaching classes and holding seminars, and maybe, just maybe, there will be an announcement made in this episode that uh, might be of interest to you. Other than that, I don't really have anything else to tell you today. News has been pretty slow lately. I think spring is just a busy time of year for engravers, so I assume everyone just has their head down working. So, I suppose we should just get to it. Here's my conversation with Lane Zulke, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm ready to go. go. Ladies and gentlemen, lucky to be talking today to big name in the engraving community. You may not know how to say his last name, and I've heard it said about a million different ways, and I'm sure he's heard it said about two million different ways. Anyways, today's beautiful Saturday afternoon, and I am here talking to Mr. Lane Zulke. Lane, how are you? I am fantastic. It's a beautiful day here as well. Where are you in the world? I am in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, way down here in the Deep South. Very good. Is that where you're born and raised? Yeah, I've been here my whole life. Born in Baton Rouge, and I've lived elsewhere in Dallas and here and there a little bit, but I've always come back to Baton Rouge. Very good. Now, Zolke sounds more German to me. I thought uh, Baton Rouge was all Frenchies. It is German. My family is uh, mostly French, and uh, my great-great-grandfather migrated here from Germany following the sawmill trade. And that's how we ended up here. He married a French woman, and my mother's family was all Cajun French. So uh-huh. mostly Cajun French with a German last name. Well, how cool. I'm going to have to make my way down to Baton Rouge someday and uh, let you show me how to cook, or at least show me what parties to go to. It's worth the trip. I it's bet. It's worth the trip. So you are a member of FIGA. As a matter of fact, I believe you're the, what, the vice president? Yep. Very cool. And you are a master engraver? Yep. And how long uh, have you been engraving? I've been engraving on and off since I was 25, and I'm 54 now. Really started down the road when I was 17 in the jewelry industry. I needed a job when I turned 17, and 
one of my father's clients was a local jeweler. And those were the days of the monogram jewelry craze. Mm. And so I got hired on to pierce out all of that monogram jewelry that was being cut. We had three Cuban engravers working with those old graver meister machines, the original ones with the long, unwieldy handles. Right. And so they, they cranked out these monograms, and I pierced between all the letters with a jeweler saw. And I just took to it like a fish to water. Yeah, I bet, so you, that can, was my, I bet you can flat out use the saw, can't you? Yeah, that was my first exposure to jewelry and, uh, and to engraving in general. And uh, so I took it from there, fell in love with the jewelry shop and everything about it, and made that my focus for the rest of my life for the most part. Took jewelry classes in college and finally left LSU to take an apprenticeship when I was uh, 25. I got a formal apprenticeship and spent six years under a an old school jeweler from Nicaragua who taught me to do everything the hard way. <laughs> well, that's probably the best way to learn it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I got to learn, you know, how to build things by hand. We did everything by hand. I learned tool making through him, you know, how to make gravers by hand. So it was a, you know, it was an ideal education for a young jeweler. Is there any type of jewelry that you specialized in before you got into engraving? No, I, I was just trained as a bench jeweler, and when I say we did everything the hard way, we did everything the hard way. So, you know, if I needed a head for a stone or something like that, I had to make it myself. And so I worked as a bench jeweler for most of my career, and uh, everything from repairs to custom jewelry. I've spent a little bit of time entering competitions and things like that and won a few awards and that. And uh, finally, the hand engraving bug hit and took off from there, and I just slowly you know, move my focus from jewelry to engraving. What year do you, did you get into hand engraving? Let's see. I was 25 years old, so that would have been in the early 90s. Oh, and uh, Yeah, I learned hand push initially, and it was with a focus on jewelry. But somewhere along the way, you know, Sam Alfano had one of the first websites that was devoted to engraving. And I had a few more questions than my mentor could answer at the time. And so I, you know, pulled up Sam's website. Like I say, it was one of the few that was out there at the time and started browsing through his photos, you know, trying to glean some information from that. And I fell upon a photo of a tiny little miniature 1911 that he had engraved. And as soon as I saw it, you know, a light bulb went off and I told myself, I need to learn how to do this. And so that set me down a path of uh, exploration and, of course, you know, there aren't too many people to teach you this stuff, so most of my time was spent learning it on my own, the hard way, making <laughs> a lot of mistakes and a lot of missteps. Now, was I eventually got there. That uh, website you're talking about, was that iGraver? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a really cool one. That one was always a mystery to me because I didn't understand how it was related to the Engraver's Cafe. and. You know, when it's like uh, learning about things that are in, in prehistory. If you're just getting into this, you don't know when this started, when that website started up, or if, if Sam's even looking at it anymore. Is it a dead website? Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of really good information on there. I'm glad he left it up. Yeah, it was invaluable. I mean, people weren't sharing very much information at that time. It was, you know, it was a neat time to, to be an engraver with the internet just starting to come around. And information starting to flow. So, but you know, there weren't the schools that there are now, and there weren't as many opportunities. So, a lot of it was just self exploration. So, did that make a major impact on your business? And the fact that you could offer hand engraving, or were was that pretty common in Baton Rouge or wherever you happened to be at that time? 
So in Baton Rouge, there's at the time there was really only one hand engraver in the jewelry industry, and all the work went to him. I was only doing hand push at the time, and like I say, I was still focused on jewelry. So, you know, I was trying to recreate some of those Victorian patterns that you see in antique jewelry. That's mainly where my focus was. I eventually left the shop that I was working at after that apprenticeship and took on a job managing a jewelry shop in town, managing their repair department. And they were kind enough to buy me my first Graver Max. And, uh, you know, that sent me down a whole other path. Things got much easier at that point. And so I started to incorporate a lot more hand engraving into the jewelry that I was doing. But, you know, cutting and steel didn't come till quite a bit later. Yeah, what brought that about? What, what made you jump? You know, that, that gun was always in the back of my head, that little miniature 1911. And, you know, I had to know how to do it. It takes me back to a story when I was a kid. One of the things that really set me down this path, when I was 12 years old, we took a class trip to the New Orleans Museum of Art. And a lady named Matilda Gettings Gray had donated her entire collection of Fabergé to that museum. And there was a small hall at the entrance to that museum, and that was the first place we visited when we went. And one of the one of the objects in that hall was the Napoleonic egg. And it made me fall in love with miniatures. I remember my whole class left the room, and I stayed. <laughs> and I walked around <laughs> that case for about a half hour, you know, looking at that egg, just trying to figure out how the hell did human hands make something like this? And so, you know, it took years and years. But after that apprenticeship, I figured out how it was done. It was done just like you think it was, the hard way. Right. And so that little 1911 that I saw of Sam's was kind of the same spark. You know, I said, I don't know how this was done, but I know he did it by hand, and I'm going to figure out how to do it. And so slowly but surely, I started picking up bits of scrap steel and uh, cutting on them, figuring out what worked and what didn't work, you know, learning graver geometry on my own. You know, there's just wasn't a lot of information out there. You know, the, I eventually bought the Meeks book, James Meeks book, and that was, you know, it was an eye opener. But, you know, it's a little bit dated and the fundamentals are all there. And it taught me quite a bit. But most of it was just through self-discovery and, you know, playing around, seeing what worked and what didn't work. I don't recommend it. It's definitely the hard way to get into this. Yeah. Well, you know, there's such a steep price to get into this anymore that that's still the way a lot of people are going to have to get into it. Um, yes. It's funny that you mentioned that Fabergé work because I just got a Fab Carl Fabergé book the other day and just mm -hmm. looking at the photographs it you look like you said you look at it and you don't understand how it could even be possible but i think it's uh, something that any engraver should look into is carl fabergé that's it's not you're not going to find anything finer than that no certainly that was my first introduction to you know handmade objects like this that incorporated a huge variety of techniques to achieve what they did i mean everything from you know miniature enamel painting to you know engraving casting that's all there yep. eventually i figured it out but it was a long road to get there <laughs> so louisiana is sportsman's paradise for those who don't know did yeah. did your gun engraving take off right away or did it take a while it took quite a while and that was partially because i wanted it to take a while i like a lot of beginner engravers who don't have a mentor or anyone to guide them. I made the mistake of cutting a gun very early in my career, and I thought it was beautiful at the time. 
And of course, you know, my wife tells me it's beautiful. My father tells me it's beautiful and all of my friends do. And um, the problem is that I didn't know what I was looking at and they didn't know what they were looking at. So <laughs> Yeah, that's, you know, a, uni- that's at- a universal problem right there. Sure. And, you know, I had a happy client at the time and that gun probably still stands up on its own, but it didn't take very long after that. I mean, within about six months, I had learned so much, made, you know, bigger leaps that I realized that I should have never cut it in the first place. Sure. Yeah. And so I, I made the decision then and there that I would, you know, start working on my own on scrap pieces and try to get a little bit of guidance. And when I did cut the next gun, it would be something that would stand the test of time. So I, I cut that second gun. It didn't stand the test of time. It's in the back <laughs> of a safe somewhere. Uh, and, you know, another hard lesson learned. Now, uh, did you write an article about getting one of the early guns back and getting to recut it? Or am I thinking of someone else? No, I never, I've never recut anything. I've said before that I would buy one of those guns back just to get it, you know, off the streets. But, you know... I did write an article, you know, explaining my experience with that and trying to give a little bit of guidance to those who, are, you know, or they've been cutting for six months and they've got that gun sitting in the back of the safe and they're chomping at the bit to, you know, put, put the graver to steel. Yeah. Just to, you know, wait and be patient. Yeah, the, I definitely understand the urge to get there, but uh, it doesn't take too long to realize that engraving a gun is not that much different than engraving a scrap piece of steel. You're just, you know, you're that's the recording. Uh-huh. That's the recording. You know, you don't pick up a guitar and then on the second day go to a recording studio and uh, make your first album, right? So <laughs> exactly, you got to give exactly. yourself some time. Yeah, that that was one of the biggest lessons for me. I spent several years engraving odds and ends, and the problem was that I was a good engraver. I was not a good artist. That's a trap that a lot of us fall into. Engraving is the easy part, and I've often equated it to using a pencil. We all know how to use a pencil and, you know, signing our name and making lines on paper is an easy thing to do, but we can't all, you know, take a look at our, you know, wife or uh, friend and make a portrait of them. And that's where I was falling short. And so somewhere along the way, I realized what my shortcomings were and I decided just to hang up the graver for a while and pick up the pencil and you know if i want to cut scroll work i need to learn this stuff and learn the fundamentals of it because i'm missing something here what i'm drawing and what i'm creating doesn't look like what i see so what am i missing and that was a revelation for me i spent about a year with a pencil in hand and i've never been a great artist i've never you know i've got scroll work that's kind of unique to me but there's a lot better artists than me out there but I did want to have the fundamentals down so that whatever I did, no matter how simple, at least it was sound, solid work that would stand up over time. Well, I don't think anybody has said anything on this show before that I agree with more than what you just said. And I'm definitely going to have to cut that clip out and put it somewhere where people can reference it because I just agree 100%. You know, we all come into this from different backgrounds and there's no shame in not being a good artist. And But you are going to have to learn it if you're going to become a great engraver, because yes. I don't think people understand that the actual, the slicing of that metal, there's not too much to it. There's only a few ways yeah. it can go. Yeah, uh, you know, I teach, it's one of the reasons I started teaching was to pass some of this knowledge on. And I tell students in my classes that by the end of this five days that I have you, I can take you further than I went in my first two years, you know, I'm going to have you cutting fairly competently by the end of this class. Uh, 
it's where you go from there. You know, cutting is the easy part. Learning to use these tools is the easy part. It's what you do with it from then on out that really counts. And that's all on them. Yeah, we're in total agreement there. So you are now engraving guns. How long until you found out about FIGA, and how did you find out about FIGA? I found out about FIGA in around 2016 or so, and I joined and started communicating with some other engravers. I found out about the show in Vegas, and somewhere along the way, I guess it was about, yeah, around 2016, I made my first visit to Vegas. I didn't have a table. I did what a lot of other engravers do. I just kind of showed up. Catherine Plummer, who's a fantastic artist and scrimshaw artist, had done some work for me on a set of 1911s that I had engraved. And I knew she was going to be there. And so I showed up out of the blue and uh, walked down the hallway of the hotel. And lo and behold, there's Catherine Plummer standing in the hallway, along with Andrew Biggs, who's the editor of the Fago magazine. And I stepped up like they were old friends, and I'm sure they looked at me like, who is this nutball that's, this, you know. <laughs> yeah, I did the same thing to Andrew. I, saw, <laughs> I recognized him from his photo in the magazine the first year I went to yep. Vegas. And I don't remember what I yelled at him from that little Starbucks <laughs> that you have to walk past. I yelled yep. something to him and acted like we'd been friends forever just to catch him, you know, off guard. And it worked. Uh-huh. And oh, I yeah. think he probably thought I was a lunatic, and he's probably about half right. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Andrew's a fantastic guy. He took it all in stride as well as Catherine. And, you know, we were fast friends by the end of the show. And uh, so I brought a gun with me to that show. And, uh, you know, was able to show it to some other engravers and got some extremely valuable feedback. You know, luckily at that point, you know, they told me most of what I was doing was right. Here's where you can improve. Here's some things to look for. And I got a lot of really valuable information. And everyone was very open to talking to me. That kind of surprised me. You know, I didn't expect the reception that I got. But I tell any beginner to, you know, it's worth taking the time to make the trip because you can get more information in that show over that three days than you can over a year just, you know, hunting around on your own. Yeah. I think people don't realize how much downtime there is at that show, too, especially if you're there for every day. And uh, even if you don't have a chance to talk to somebody right at that time, it's going to open up. Oh, absolutely. And not to mention, you know, people break out and go to dinner together or drinks or whatever. And you can sure get a lot of information in a short amount of time. Yeah, I was very lucky that the first show, Barry Hands was talking to me at some point towards the end of the first day. And a group of folks were getting together for dinner. And Barry invited me to dinner that evening. And, you know, some of my heroes in the engraving world were all sitting at that table. And so I was able to have, you know, Frank open shop discussions on, you know, talking shop with people that I'd only seen in magazines and books. And it was an eye-opening weekend for me, for sure. And that's what led me down the path of deciding to, you know, enter work for Master Engraver. So I spent the next three years working towards that goal. Yeah, let's talk Never about s- that a little bit. Let's talk about yeah. when you you decided to become a Master Engraver and what was the process? What were your what obstacles did you have to overcome to get that? Well, first, I knew that, you know, artistically, I wasn't up to snuff, so I was going to have to work on that. I knew technically, as an engraver, I could cut well, and there were very few tasks that I couldn't do. You know, coming out of my background as a jeweler and working in small scale, 
you know, it was no great hurdle for me to move into steel and to move into firearms, things like inlay. That all came pretty naturally to me. It's the design aspect that was the hardest thing. I got kind of lucky in that I had the right gun in the safe as a master's project. And Mike Duber has always been a big inspiration for me. And one of the things I liked about Mike's work is that he tells a story with his guns. You know, a lot of people decorate guns, but a lot of the guns that Mike does tell a story. And so I had this pair of single actions sitting in my safe that I had inherited from my great-grandfather. And I'm looking at this gun thinking what I'm going to do with it. And I decided, you know, what if I'm going to cut this gun? I might as well make it a tribute to my great-grandfather. And he was an aircraft mechanic in the tail end of World War II and then in Korea. And uh, I said, let's make this gun into a tribute to him. And so the first thing that I did on that gun was cut the bottom of the back strap. I inlaid a little fine silver snap-on wrench into the bottom of that back strap. There are photos of it online that you can see it. Uh, and a issue of the engraver too, right? I believe so. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll look that up and I'll add yep. the issue number to the show notes. Absolutely. So uh, that was an eye-opening session, you know, about 10 hours spent in the shop trying to inlay that tiny little silver (laughs) wrench. I must have cut three or four of them out before I learned how to inlay fine silver. And from there, the rest of the gun just kind of took shape. But at the time, I was working as a full-time bench jeweler doing repair work for local shops. And so... I would start working on the gun in the evenings. I would work on jewelry till around six. Then I would start working on the gun after a little bit of a break. And I spent about a year or so working till one in the morning on that gun. I can't tell you how many hours I put into it. And I never quite got to where I wanted to. It's hard to tell when something is finished, but eventually I had to call it done when it was only a couple of days before the show. <laughs> yeah, I know uh, that feeling. <laughs> So it's, you know, that was one of the first guns that I cut that, you know, I said, I'm satisfied with this and this will hold up 20 years from now. I'll still be proud then of what I accomplished. And it taught me a lot because it had a little bit of everything in it. You know, to become a master engraver, there are a set of criteria that you need to meet. And so I tried to include all of those criteria within that single, within that single gun. And I accomplished most of that. And I did not expect, however, to make Master Engraver on my first attempt. I was a little bit shocked at that. So I expected to, you know, get some valuable feedback and for everybody to tell me what I needed to do next year. So when when Barry Hans and Andrew walked up and told me I had made it, I was flabbergasted, to say the least. <laughs> well, very good. Very good. Yeah, I, that, I think that was actually the first uh, convention I made it to was when you got your I'll master's. Yeah. Yep. So that was a good time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was on cloud nine for a couple of days after that. So it was an inspiring time. What did earning your master's, what did that, how did that change your engraving? It was kind of a neat trajectory from there. Immediately after that, Barry Hans has a tradition of wrangling the new master's to participate in the auction gun for the following year. Every year, Fega creates an auction gun that's auctioned off at our annual banquet to raise money for the guild. And so Barry asked me if I'd be interested in cutting the scroll on the 1911 that they had chosen for the following year's auction. And I gladly accepted. And I, th- I think he knows exactly what he's doing when he does that. <laughs> you know, 
I'm all excited about you know just receiving masters, so I'll gladly do anything for the guild at that point. And when I got the gun, it had already been cleaned and prepped, and Brian Powley had already done gold line work in it. And so I started designing something that you know I thought would you know really stand up well over time that would be desirable at auction. And I had one person in mind for the gun at that time. Frank Brownell was coming to our auctions pretty regularly. And if he liked the gun, he was going to go home with it. There was no doubt. And so the whole time I was working on that design and cutting that gun, I kind of had Frank in mind. He was getting up in age at the time. And I had a funny feeling that he wasn't going to be making that many more shows after 2019. And so, you know, one of my goals was to create something that was unique enough and that Frank would like enough that he would want to go home with it. I wanted a gun in Frank Brownell's collection. He's got one of the largest engraving collections in the country. His Most of his work or his pieces are donated to the NRA Museum in Raton, New Mexico. And so I wanted Frank to go home with that gun. And sure enough, he did. It, you know, one of my proudest accomplishments in that gun. How cool. Well, the, yep. The photos were great. It got a lot of coverage. And lo and behold, the following year, I started getting calls for gun engraving. And one of the calls I got, or rather an email I got, was from a fellow whose English was fairly broken. But he mentioned that he saw that gun, liked it, and wanted me to make a pair of them. Oh, cool. <laughs> and asked me if I could get him two guns. And so I sent an email back to him that said, no, I don't sell guns, but if you'll get me the guns, I'd be happy to do it. It's a rather expensive job. It's going to be time consuming, but I'm happy to do the work for you. And I sent the email off and kind of forgot about it. I didn't expect to hear back from him. As a gun engraver, you get used to not hearing back from you know, people. Yeah, yeah, ever again. <laughs> yeah, the champagne, a taste beer budget. Yeah. So about three months later, I got a, an email that says, okay, I've got the guns. Where do I send them? And I was a little shocked. So I sent this fellow back an email to tell him that, you know, I hope you understand what you're getting into. We didn't talk much the first time. And I explained, you know, that you're looking at about 350 hours per gun. Oh, gosh. And his response, <laughs> I require a 50% down payment to do this work. And I sent him a figure. And the email came back, okay, where do I send the guns? Where do I send the money? <laughs> Beautiful. I wish they all worked that way. It would be nice. So that started out a beautiful long-term relationship with a fellow from Thailand who has purchased quite a few guns from me. He does about one or two commissions per year. That first set went to the king and queen of Thailand. Oh, gosh. And uh, it was kind of a shock to me as well. And so, you know, that's been a wonderful relationship over the years. We've done quite a few guns. I've got one in the safe right now that I'm working on for him. So, you know, that single auction gun that I did for Fega, I, you know, I wasn't being paid for that commission, but I spent a lot of time on it knowing the exposure that I got from it would pay off in the end. And that's an old joke amongst engravers. We always get these folks calling us and saying, you know, can you engrave this gun for free? I'll get you tons of exposure. Yeah. And for most of us, exposure is the last thing we needed. Yeah. But at that time, I kind of knew what that gun would mean to me, the auction gun that is. And sure enough, it, it paid off in spades that I put the amount of time that I did into it. It kind of put me on the map. 
And so I, you know, since then I've reached the point where I don't want any more work. I try to send as much out <laughs> as I can. Yeah, that's when it's good to have other friends in the business who say, you know, who'd yeah. be perfect for this, so and so. But yeah, you know, one thing I think that's overlooked in being a Figa member is, you know, their website is not very fancy. But I still get, I don't know, two or three inquiries a month just from having mm-hmm. my name on their website. Absolutely. And you just never know who's going to be looking at your stuff or where they're going to see it. So No, absolutely. You know, social media, web presence, all of that has made a huge impact on hand engravers today. And, you know, the dissemination of information and getting clients, it's never been easier than it is today. You teach with GRS, is that right? Correct. Yep. And how long have you been doing that? I was approached in 2019. Chris Carell, the marketing director at GRS, uh, told me that they were getting a lot of requests for gun engraving courses, and they didn't have instructors enough to fill those requests. And so he asked me if I'd be interested in teaching advanced gun engraving for GRS. And I said I would be happy to do it as long as you don't ask me to teach jewelry classes. (laughs) That was about the time when I was looking towards transitioning from jewelry into gun engraving. And so I accepted the position. They flew me down and we, you know, showed me the training center and we talked about things. It was a good fit for me. And so I agreed to work for them. Unfortunately, our first year of classes was canceled. That was right around the time that all the shutdowns happened from COVID. So I had a year to, you know, mull over what I wanted to teach and curriculum and things like that. And so I started teaching, I suppose it was 2020, 2021 it was my first year teaching with them. And I taught a full, full course schedule that first year. It, it turns out it was just a great fit for me. I had no clue, you know, how I would be as a teacher. I've never taught anything. in my. I didn't know what I was going to teach these folks. When he first asked me to take the job, you know, that's the first question I ask is, what the heck am I going to teach anyone? <laughs> And it wasn't until my first class that it kind of dawned on me, you know, when you've done this for this many years, you kind of forget, you know, how much knowledge there is in, you know, becoming an engraver. You know, you forget all the fundamentals. You just take all the stuff for granted. But there's a lot to learn in doing this. And so, you know, from then on out, my goal with students has been to take them as far as I can get them in five days. In that five days time, I want them to have progressed, you know, as far as someone else who's been working on their own for a year or two. And for the most part, all my students have told me that's, you know, it's borne out that, you know, they tell me that all those mistakes that they were making, you know, those questions are answered and they go home better engravers for it. Well, that's great. And you took that experience and went forward and made your own YouTube videos too, right? You know, YouTube actually came first. Oh, did it? I didn't know that. Yes. uh, I think that's one of the reasons Chris approached me. I did started working on YouTube kind of by accident. There was a, a young blacksmith on YouTube who was very popular at the time. And he was asking some questions about engraving on his uh, channel. And he mentioned that he was going to be doing some gold inlay on a project that he was working on. And I said, you know what, I've been watching this guy's channel for quite a while. Why don't I help him out and make a quick little video and send it to him about doing this gold inlay? Because I know he's got the skill to do it. He just needs some of the tips and tricks. And so I sat down, I put together a camera system, and I made a little 20-minute video on doing some inlay. 
And of course, the video quality was horrible, as most <laughs> first-time YouTubers are. I had no clue what I was doing. It's, it's not easy, is it? No, it's not. So I posted that first video to YouTube, and uh, lo and behold, he took a look at the video, and it's me in one of his own videos. And I woke up the next day, and all of a sudden, I see my phone just exploding. <laughs> one, one ping after another from Instagram and YouTube. And it's subscribers. By the end of that first day, I had about 2,000 subscribers on my oh, YouTube channel. Wow. And had no clue where they came from. And it wasn't until I took a look at this fellow Alex's blacksmithing video that I saw he referenced me. And so that's when I looked into monetizing YouTube and found out what it took to do it. And I had reached the threshold within the first week. I think by the end of the first month, I had around 20,000 subscribers just out of the blue. And I said, you know what, this is a fantastic platform for disseminating some information, tips and tricks that I had a hard time finding when I was starting. You know, I can pass some of this stuff on this way, and there's just not a lot of good information on YouTube, especially at that time. So I decided to figure out what it took to make some quality videos. And I believe that Chris Carell had taken a look at those videos and liked what he saw. And that led me into working for the Glendo Corporation. How cool. So when I first started out, of course, I was reliant on YouTube videos. And there, at that time, it seemed to me there was a lot of useful information out there. And then one day, there's a, some fellow who had made one of those homemade pneumatic engravers. And he must have posted 8,000 videos. And all of a sudden, you couldn't find anything anymore. Yeah, and, yeah. And so I quit looking altogether until the other day I opened it up and was looking around. And there are quite a few people making videos these days. Now, the quality varies greatly. But sure. if you've got a question, you can probably find the answer out there. It may not be the way I would answer the question, but it's back. It's back. <laughs> That's good to hear. And I'm asked that quite often, you know, when are you going to start making videos again? And the reason that I quit was I had quite a few commissions building up. And the reality is that editing videos the way that I was doing them uh, took a lot of time. And so I've been asked if I'm going to come back and do YouTube videos again. I'd like to at some point, but I'll certainly change the format and make them shorter videos that are you know more oriented towards a single tip or technique in the shop where I can present it in a you know concise manner that won't take so much editing. So it would be really cool if like maybe you put together a book project or something and could tie videos into your upcoming book project. So that's a good lead into what my plans are for the next year. I've slowly been divesting myself of commissions here. I've got about four more guns in the safe to complete. And I haven't taken any new commissions on for the last six, eight months. And I'm telling folks right now that I'm about two years out because my goal is to take a year off and write a new hand engraving manual. I think it's long overdue. Everyone I've talked to agrees with me. The last, I mean, we really don't have a whole lot of written information out there when it comes to hand engraving. When I took started up, we had the Meeks book that everyone knows that was geared towards gun engraving, the art of engraving. And then we had some turn-of-the-century books, you know, where the photos were all old woodcuts and, you know, none of it really applied to today. The fundamentals are all there, of course. But, you know, techniques have changed over the years. Yep. And now the Meeks book is starting to get a little dated. 
you know, a good example is the some of the transfer methods used <laughs> yeah. in, in Meek's book. You know, find yourself an old box camera and put the image onto the wall with a <laughs> backlit, you know, lamp, yeah. things like that. And yeah. so, yeah, the technique, I mean, the fundamentals are all there, but we've changed so much in the last 50 years that it's, you know, it's past time for a modern hand engraving manual that addresses modern tools and techniques. Well, I think you're exactly right about that. Not only in instructional books, but all those old R.L. Wilson books, you know, what's it called? Steel Canvas and all the cult books. They have nice pictures for their time, but photography has improved so much since then as far as what you can show in a book that even those books are a little bit hard to look at because you just find yourself wishing you could see more detail in them. Sure. And you can understand a little bit about what young engravers went through in the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, when the lack of photography, I mean, there, there were no really good high resolution photographs back then. So you didn't have a lot to go on. And if you didn't have a mentor, you were kind of on your own. Now we, you know, we can blow this stuff up, you know, large on the screen on the computer, and which is a problem in itself. But yeah, I mean, you can see anything you want to on a computer screen these days. Well, I think that's super cool that you're working on a book. I'm glad somebody's doing it. And, uh, of course, I wish you the best of luck with all that and look forward to buying it when it comes out. And I'm excited. if I were you, I would put your name spelled out on there with a pronunciation after it. <laughs> because, you know, we all say, well, I've got the Meeks book or I've got Ron Smith's book. Well, you don't want people saying Zuelki or... <laughs> exactly. So you're going to have to you're going to have to help people out. Exactly, or just shorten my name to one one name like Madonna. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, it's uh, I'm excited about doing it. It's long overdue, and I've got some good help. I've had quite a few offers to help me out with the book. So, you know, luckily I know quite a few people in the industry. I've got Andrew Biggs, who's been editing our magazine, has offered to you know, give me some advice on this. So uh, I'm in good company, and there's you know I know enough folks out there that I won't be alone in doing this. Well, that's going to be great. I know everybody's looking forward to that. When it does come out, you'll have to come on to the news section and we'll announce it together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what else? What have I not asked you about your engraving career? I can't think of anything. You've been pretty darn thorough. Well, you know how I did it? I've stopped writing notes beforehand and just started really listening. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a little bit of new news. Uh, I just got back from the the Cult Collectors Association show. And that was a fun project that I did for them, much like happened with the Engravers Guild and their auction gun. I was approached by Mike Duber a couple of years ago about engraving the auction gun for the Colt Collectors Association. And he didn't know it at the time, but that was one of my greatest ambitions was to cut a gun for the Colt Collectors Association. So we completed that gun last year and presented it at, at the 2022 show. And that was an exciting project to do. Tell me a little bit about that, because I think I, you are one of your titles is being a Colt Master Engraver, right? Is that from that same project? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Colt Collectors Association has been doing these projects for a while. And one of the things that happens when that gun is cut is that Colt issues a factory letter along, along with the gun that states that the gun was cut by Colt Master Engraver, so-and-so, in this case, me. And so it's a neat it's a neat commission. Right now, I believe we've got around ten engravers in the country that have cut 
guns for the Colt Collectors Association, who are both Fager Masters and Colt Masters at this point. So it was an exciting commission, and it meant a lot to me to get that recognition from Colt. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. You've had quite a career so far. It's been a little bit of a whirlwind. It's one of the reasons I'm excited about sitting down to write this book. I'll be able to take a little bit of a break from engraving, pass on to that work, pass on some of that work to some of the younger engravers who are looking for new commissions, and I'll give myself a little bit of a break. What do you do when you do take a break? A little bit of everything. I've been called, you know, a hobby boy by everybody that knows me. I've everything from woodworking to hunting to sailing to skateboarding. I'm a musician as well, so. I've played Cajun fiddle in a number of bands around here. So, Oh, really? Yeah. Yep. I don't like for things to do after work, that's for sure. <laughs> well, that's very interesting. I didn't know. I knew you were a sailor, but I didn't know about the other stuff. I guess, mm-hmm. I guess skateboarding would have hit right when you were the right age to pick it up. Yeah, I started skateboarding when I was about 12 years old, and I've, I've had a skateboard in my house ever since then. And that's my, that's my aerobic exercise. Everybody looks at me and they see this guy who looks like a drugstore cowboy, but they don't realize on the weekends I'm dropping into pools and carving around the pool. And that's my aerobic exercise. Well, you're going to have to post some pictures of that because I want to see that. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I mean, I do a little bit of everything. I don't like being still. And so if I can, you know, get out in nature, get out and enjoy myself or learn something new, I'm going to be doing it. Awesome. Well, unless there's something I missed, we're going to move into the part everybody likes the best, which is I'm going to ask you, what have you done in your career that you are most proud of? Most proud of? You know, I think I'm going to go back to the gun that I submitted for Masters. That was an eye-opening experience for me. I took no shortcuts when I cut that gun. I learned more on that single gun than any other project I've ever done as an engraver. And, you know, to be able to pass that gun down onto my son, I didn't mention it before, but I've got a photo of my great-grandfather standing in the desert in Las Vegas next to a 57 Chrysler, I believe it is, wearing this pair of six guns on his hips. And so now I've got those two guns in my safe. They'll be passed down to my son, and hopefully they'll stay in the family for a long time. But that gun, uh, you know, it's part of my family. I remember them as a kid, seeing them hanging on his bedside, and now they sit there hanging in my safe. So it's definitely one of my proudest accomplishments. Awesome. And how old are your kids? I have one son, I'm sorry, 16. That... I said kids, but no, I have one son, 16. And is he uh, is he looking like he might be a second-generation engraver, or is he going his own Absolutely way? not. <laughs> okay. Well. Absolutely not, which is fine with me. He's, he's an athlete. He plays golf. He does all the things that I didn't do as a kid. He's the exact opposite of me, but he's his own person, and that's just fine. Yeah. Well, you never know what will happen either. I mean, a lot of us don't even start until we're in our 30s or 40s. Very true, yeah. So, Okay, well, we've listened to the good part. Now, let's hear about a time where the project just turned inside out and did not work out for you at all. I've got one of those, and it's sitting in the safe to this day. And, you know, one of these days, it's a steel gun, a a little Derringer. And it's that time that I thought it was, you know, I was ready to cut a gun, and I really was not. And, uh, you know, it sits in the back of the safe and it's waiting for a file and sandpaper. And, uh, you know, I'll treat it like a I'll treat it like a piece of clay. I'll 
shave it down, cut everything out, and redo that gun one of these days. Or maybe I'll just keep it there as a memento for what not to do. Well, you know? yeah, it's always a good reminder, right? It's absolutely a good reminder of the, you know, the early part of my career. And, and it's helped me, you know, to help out a lot of beginners. I can show them, you know, where I came from and, you know, where I am now. And, you know, it's just a good reminder to beginners to slow down, take it slow, enjoy the process. Don't get in too much of a hurry. Well, that's good. That's good advice. And actually, the one of the very last questions I always ask is, do you have any advice for people who are getting started in engraving right now? Absolutely. Take things slow. And if at all possible, you know, engraving is one of those things that if you're really hell-bent on it, you can learn on your own, especially, you know, today with, with the information that we've got available at our fingertips. But there's something about hand engraving that lends itself to hands-on, one-on-one instruction. There's a lot of nuance and subtlety about this art that just doesn't translate through video or, you know, written. It really helps to have somebody there standing over your shoulder to help with those little things. I see this in students a lot in class that have been cutting, you know, for a year or two on their own. And they come in and take my class and they've been struggling throughout this whole period. And I sit down, I take a look at what they're doing. I always ask to see the tip of their graver through the microscope. And more often than not, I find out that there's some small flaw in the way they've sharpened their graver or some flaw in technique, the way they're holding their graver. And we make a small minor change. And the next thing you know, they're often running and they're cutting beautiful lines, you know? And so they, the problem is that the old saying, you don't know what you don't know. And when we, you know, just take a few minutes to sit back and, you know, suss out what the flaws are in their technique, Next thing you know, they're off and running. And uh, so if at all possible, find a mentor, find somebody who can sit down with you and just show you some of the basics. And of course, the best option is to take a class if possible, but that's not available to everyone. So seek out some instruction. Well, I, with like everything else on here, I can't agree with you more because I think you certainly know what you're talking about. I was going to say, and you know, that's, I don't say that just because I'm an instructor. I don't really care who you learn from, whether you come to the GRS training center or whether you learn from somebody in your hometown, you know, quality instruction is worth its weight in gold. So definitely seek out somebody that can help you out and show you the basics. Well, excellent. Well, and unless there's something I've forgotten, I guess we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Fantastic. It was an excellent experience. Well, I appreciate it. I sure enjoyed talking to you. I, you know, my last two guests have been much better public speakers than I have been. So I'm going to have to get somebody bad on next, I guess, or I'm going to be out of a job. <laughs> I think it's been fantastic so far. And I really appreciate what you're doing. I know this is not an easy thing to do to wrangle up all these engravers, but it was something that was definitely a worthwhile endeavor. So I really appreciate what you've taken the time to do. Well, Thanks so much, Wade. Thanks, Lane. I'm going to let you get back to your Saturday. I appreciate it. All Take right. care of yourself. All right, you too. Bye. All right. Bye. Well, there you have it. Who's looking forward to buying Lane's new book? I know I am. I'm sure it'll be a good one. I want to thank Lane for coming on the show. I enjoyed talking to him. I found him to be a very interesting person. I also would like to thank my friends wherever you may be in the world. Recently, I've spoken to people from Hungary, 
Azerbaijan, Estonia, New Zealand, Sweden, Germany, Spain, and England, and I'm sure I'm forgetting someone. Wherever you are, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. I hope that you are enjoying the show. Thanks, as always, to my friend Engraver Hand for making the show's music. I guess I'll get back to work now. See you next time.